all groups have cultures and all cultures have values. Groups have cultures, cultures have values. This is why if you want to learn about American culture, it might be best to ask a foreigner. Uh, for example, I bet Rames or Andre and Kezia could tell us a lot more about the idiosyncrasies of life in America, uh, perhaps better than those born and raised here. Because they originally came from another culture, the values of this culture can be more easily detected at times. And while some of the differences in cultures are primarily trivial and aesthetic in nature, you know, the accents, the types of clothing, the greetings offered, what makes cultures most profoundly different are its values. And so this morning, as we turn in the book of Mark to chapter 10, we'll be considering a group with distinct values, a distinct, a distinct culture based on the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we'll be considering how living as citizens of God's kingdom here on earth influences our lives in the seemingly mundane but massively significant areas of marriage and children and finances. So we'll be doing so in our 16th week here in the book of Mark. Let me encourage you to turn to chapter 10, verses 1 to 31. So far in Mark's gospel, we've seen God the Father anoint God the Son with God the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. Uh, over the past nine chapters, Jesus has healed and taught. He's worked miracles. He's astounded the crowds, infuriated the religious leaders, and shown incredible mercy to the miserable. Yet many have remained confused about his identity and mission. Thought he was, some thought he was an impressive prophet. Others came to him for dramatic displays of power. Uh, the disciples themselves, Jesus' hand-picked apostles, have often been spiritually blind. Yet we saw in the middle of chapter 8, in a climactic revelation, Jesus show himself as the Christ, that is the King of Israel. He's the Son of Man who comes to take up his cross and calls his followers to do the same. He's the Son of God to whom we should listen. And so then last week we saw that this kind of cross-shaped ministry should both inform and guide the apostles' own ministry as they lead Jesus' followers. And thus we arrive at our text this morning. We'll have three main points. The main point of our passage is simply this. With marriage, children, and money, Jesus' followers look to him as the model of kingdom living. With marriage, children, and money, Jesus' followers look to him as the model of kingdom living. So read with me Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, in, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who could be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last will be first amen Well, our first point is found in verses 1 to 16, entitled, Marriage in Light of Creation. Marriage in Light of Creation. In verse 1, we see that Jesus is continuing his journey southward, uh, on the road from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem. Jesus began this journey in chapter 8 at that climactic revelation that he is the Christ, uh, because there, at that revelation, Jesus basically said, I'm the king, and I'm going to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. Well, both of these things require Jesus to be in Jerusalem. And so since chapter 8, around verse 30, Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem, which we'll find at the end of Mark's gospel. So he's making his way down south, teaching the crowds. And notice what verse 2 says. The Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked him a question. Uh, Not for the first time. The religious leaders of Israel have sinister motivations. They're trying to test him, that by testing they might trap him. So they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
in this, they are trying to see what side of religious debate Jesus is on. So in Jesus' day, there was an ongoing, raging, theological, moral, religious debate in Judaism about whether and when divorce would be permissible. In one camp, based on Deuteronomy 24, uh, the rabbi said that a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. Uh, literally, it says if, they, if, he burns, uh, if she burns his toast. Uh, the other party said that a man must divorce his wife only in cases of sexual morality or adultery. So they're trying to see, Jesus, in which of these two camps do you fit in? But as always, friends, it's a bad idea to try to box Jesus in. Jesus doesn't fit into our preconceived notions. Is Jesus a liberal or conservative? Democrat or Republican? They're asking the wrong question. So Jesus replies in verse 3, asking what Moses commanded. And the Pharisees quote this Deuteronomy 24 passage. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. To which Jesus emphatically replies, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. Uh, that is, Deuteronomy 24 is not the ideal. Divorce is not plan A. Rather, God allowed for divorce because of your hardness of heart as a way to make a bad situation a little bit less bad. Rather than uh, keeping a woman in an abusive marriage or one in which her husband is serially adulterous, she can be divorced and thus she can be free to remarry. But this was never the ideal. Uh, that's what Jesus gets at in verse 6, right? But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In short, marriage was not meant to be broken. A sin did that. The fall did that. Before sin, when God created Adam and Eve, marriage was permanent. They were naked and unashamed. It was only because of your sinful hard hearts that he allowed divorce. What else did Jesus teach about marriage in these few short verses? Uh, let's briefly, briefly, consider six truths. First, God designed marriage to be monogamous. God designed monogamy. Notice that verse six refers to male and female, two individuals. And then a man, singular, holds fast to his wife, singular. And the two become one. God didn't create one Adam and three Eves, or one Eve and three Adams. Uh, God's plan was always monogamy. Second, marriage involves the man taking initiative. You see that in verse 7. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And this we see the man taking the initiative to pursue and be united to his bride. Uh, of course, in you know, any given culture, that might look different. But the man is to take the initiative in the relationship. Third, notice that marriage breaks a family to start a family. Again, in verse 7, the man leaves his old family to cleave to his new wife, uh, to start a new family. That new couple, even without kids, that's a new family. No longer under the authority of either of their parents. Uh, they're, they're one. That's the fourth thing we see. In marriage, the two become one. 
And for this to happen, you must have a man and a woman. Just as God, from the one man, Adam, made the two, male and female, so marriage brings back together the man and the woman. The two came from one, and in marriage, the two become one. Again, they return to being one. That is, the, the sexual union of a husband and a wife symbolizes and epitomizes the two becoming one. As the two flesh become one, likewise, the husband and the wife are united spiritually and emotionally, relationally, financially, your calendars. I mean, just everything, right? In every way conceivable. The reason why a man cannot be married to a man and a woman cannot be married to a woman is because in those cases, the two cannot become one flesh. For the two to become one flesh, marriage requires a man and a woman. Fifth, in marriage, God joins a man together, a man and a woman together. Do you notice that in verse 9? What therefore God has joined together. Uh, So when you got married, if you got married, it wasn't fundamentally the pastor or the justice of the peace or the state who married you. It was God. And so sixth and finally, ordinarily, we should not end our marriages. I'll caveat this slightly, as the Bible does in a few moments. But suffice it to say that for for now, that what God has joined together, we don't have authority to break apart, right? Just as it is gruesome and painful to see a body cut in half, that's what happens when a marriage ends. The one flesh is torn asunder. Now, all this was pretty radical stuff for Jesus' contemporaries, as it is in our day. That's why the disciples are confused in verse 10. And so Jesus further explains in verse 11. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Whereas in the Jewish tradition, Marriage could easily be disbanded by men, but only, uh, not really by woman. By a woman, it was really hard. Jesus kind of levels the playing field here. Divorce is ordinarily wrong to pursue, whether by the man or the woman. Why do I say ordinarily? Well, in Matthew 19, 9, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. So in Jesus, in Matthew, he, he inserts this clause, except for cases of sexual morality. Okay, so what's going on? Well, when Jesus makes his statement in Mark 10, which, which seems to prohibit all divorce, it seems it's likely that he did so assuming the proviso that sexual immorality or adultery can end a marriage. So in Jesus' day, everyone just knew that if one of the parties commits adultery, that is grounds for ending the marriage. So in Mark 10, Jesus doesn't state it because it's assumed that his readers understand it. 1 Corinthians 7 also mentions abandonment as grounds for divorce, where, it's, where divorce is allowable. I think Exodus 21 also uh, includes f- severe physical abuse can, as grounds for divorce. 
So, so here in Mark 10, we, we should realize that Jesus isn't trying to give us an exhaustive and comprehensive theology of marriage and divorce. It seems that he's going after a particularly devious practice where a man would be married to a woman. He then wants another woman. He knows he can't commit adultery. So he divorces the first to marry the second to get, a, get around the command, don't commit adultery. And Jesus' point is that if you're doing that, well, you can't do that. You can't toss your wife aside. Yes, you've technically not committed adultery, but for all intents and purposes, you have. If you divorce without biblical grounds and you get remarried, Jesus says you are committing adultery. That second marriage is still a, a marriage, but you've sinned against your first spouse. Now, why is marriage such a big deal? I mean, why does Jesus up the stakes so much and prohibit lax divorces and call husbands and wives to be faithful to their marriage vows? Well, it's because of what marriage represents, doesn't it? It's because of what marriage symbolizes. In Ephesians 5, Paul makes the point that marriage doesn't exist for its own sake. It's rather like a living parable. In Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, he writes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, like Jesus quoting Genesis 2. And then how, how does Paul apply that? He says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What Paul is saying is that every one flesh union of a man and a woman in marriage, it's actually about Christ and the church. The intimate relationship that characterizes human marriage is actually meant as a metaphor or a picture of the way that Jesus relates to his people. So when God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, before there was sin, when he created that marriage, before there was divorce or fighting or adultery or selfishness, he set it up in such a way that you could simply point to the marriage of a man and a woman and know how God relates to his people. The husband was to love and cherish his wife, as Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. The wife was to respect and submit herself to her husband, as Ephesians 5, 22 and 33 say. In these ways, God was saying, look, see how tender and loving I am. See how I cherish and nourish my people. See how I serve them. See how they love and respect me. See how they follow me. See the joy that's found in being in covenant relationship with me. Marriage, more than anything else in all creation, was meant as a magnificent, beautiful portrait of how God relates to his people. And it's because of this lofty goal, because marriage has so much at stake in it, that divorce is so serious. Right? Because divorce lies about who God is and who God's people are. A divorce wrongly implies that God would leave and desert his people when he would never do that. So, you know, how, how should we apply this? Let me just mention four concluding thoughts in this area. Uh, first, if you're married, take your marriage vows seriously. Because whether you want to or not, your marriage is portraying Christ and the church to the world. It might be a good picture, or it might be a really deformed picture. 
Husbands, do you lead with tenderness and compassion? Are you gentle and patient? Care for your wife as for your own body. Wives, do you submit with humility and grace? Are you joyful and respectful? Help your husband as he seeks to lead in a Christ-like way. Second, know that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. As I've said, Jesus does allow for divorce in Matthew 19 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 in cases of sexual morality and desertion. I think Exodus 21 in cases of physical abuse. When someone chooses to divorce without those grounds, they have sinned, but not unforgivably. The Lord Jesus loves to forgive the repentant and the contrite. Third, notice that the Bible asserts that there are two and only two genders. You see that in Mark 10. Quoting, Jesus, quoting Genesis 1, Jesus says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. You see, Jesus in the Bible is very clear about this. God has made only two sexes, only two genders. Gender is not essentially and fundamentally a social construct that should be deconstructed. It, of course, gender includes socially derived values about what kind of clothing you wear, what kind of uh, hair style you have, on, on a million things. Of course, socially, culturally, there are cues derived. But it is a biological fact of life. Our genders are not assigned at birth. They are decided at conception. This means that we're not at liberty to try to change our gender because it's not a decision that we get to make, right? God made them male and female. That's his decision. In all of life, including in all of our sexual lives, our desires do not and should not serve as the ultimate authority. Uh, you can't self-define or self-identify as another gender any more than you can self-define or self-identify as another ethnicity or age, right? I'm not a 14-year-old Asian boy, <laughs> nor am I a woman. I can't be either of those things. Part of our humanity is accepting and receiving our gender as a good gift from God. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't people who really do struggle with gender dysphoria. That is the experience of feeling disjointed, distressed regarding their sex, regarding their gender. I'm not making light of that experience at all. I am saying that just because something feels natural to us or good to us, well, that doesn't make it good. If I strongly feel like lusting or lying or looting, that doesn't make my feelings correct. Because of the fall into sin, we all have disordered desires. We all have disordered sexual desires that we have to say no to. Our job, therefore, isn't you know, to listen fundamentally to ourselves, but to listen to God and to order our lives according to his word. And so forth and finally, uh, if you have questions or concerns about any of this, if this is confusing to you, uh, let me encourage you to come talk to me or another trusted Christian friend. Uh, if you're married and you're having marriage difficulties, uh, let me encourage you to come talk to me or another trusted Christian friend. Uh, most couples come in about a decade later than they should. 
doesn't mean it's unfixable a decade later. It's just a lot harder. So if that's you, come talk to me. If you have questions about gender or same-sex attraction, or you find Jesus' teaching on these matters confusing, let's realize that none of us as Christians are without sin. We all need the grace and forgiveness of Christ, and yet the Bible is our authority. So let's go to God's word together, studying it, seeking to live it out in all of our lives. That's our first point. Let's consider our second briefer point in verses 13 to 16, entitled Children in Light of God's Kingdom. Verse 13 reads, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Apparently they thought Jesus was too important or too busy to trouble himself with such insignificant children. As we considered last week, children in the ancient Near East were generally considered a nuisance until they contribute, could contribute to the family's you know, output. Yet notice Jesus' response. When he saw it, he was indignant, verse 14, and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. It's because Jesus is so lowly that he's happy to associate with the lowly. Jesus fulfills Romans 12, 16. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. He receives the children. And his affection for them is evident in his anger towards the disciples, right? And then Jesus gives the reason why the disciples shouldn't proudly exclude children from Jesus' presence. He says in the second half of verse 14, because the kingdom of God belongs to ones like this. And then he clarifies what that means in verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So if you, don't, if you don't become like a child in some way, you aren't entering the kingdom. What's Jesus getting at? Well, it's that we must be weak, needy, independent, just like our kids, just like the kids in this church, just like little Peter. We have a six-week-old. He's super adorable really big lungs, <laughs> impressive vocal cords. Do you know why he uses them so much? Because he can't do anything on his own. He can't feed himself. He can't change himself. He can't even roll over to where he wants to go. He is weak and needy independent. And friends, unless you realize that that's you spiritually before God, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You see, Christianity isn't for the impressive. It isn't for the morally astute religious go-getters, those marked by strength and independence. No, it's as we sang last week, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you full of pity, love, and power. Friends, I wonder if you view yourself as weak and needy. Do you recognize yourself as a beggar in need of Christ's righteousness and salvation? Or are you pretty assured of your standing, your moral standing before God because of your good deeds? Children serve as a wonderful example of reliance upon someone else. And so Jesus takes them in his arms and he 
blesses them. If you want to think more about this, come back tonight at 6 p.m., not here, to Emmanuel Baptist Church. Uh, We'll be thinking more about how we should try to bring our children to Jesus just as he intends. Uh, But before we leave this second point, uh, children, have you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? There is no age too young to do so. Perhaps you might feel embarrassed by what a sibling or friend might think. Yet here, notice Jesus' love for you. If you know how to read, read the Bible to learn more about Jesus, what it means to follow him. If you don't know how to read, ask a parent or older sibling. Jesus loves little children, and he desires that you would come to love and trust in him. Let's turn to our final section now in verses 17 to 31, entitled Money and Possessions in Light of Eternity. Money and Possessions in Light of Eternity. Notice the man's zeal in verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, no respectable Jewish male would make a practice of running. The fact that this man kneels and, you know, his very question shows just how earnest and zealous he is. And on the one hand, he has a high view of Jesus, doesn't he? He says, good teacher. Uh, A descriptor, good, that pious Jews would typically, not always, but oftentimes, only reserve for God alone. So he's got a high view of Jesus, But on the other hand, he actually has a quite mundane view of Jesus. He's merely a teacher. And it's this low view that Jesus will confront. Notice also his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Sadly, this man has an entirely misguided notion and understanding of eternal life. He thinks it's possible to be good enough to do good enough to earn eternal life. And so just as we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus' reply is a little bit of a riddle. Uh, In love, he enters into this man's way of thinking uh, to prove just how wrong he is. So he says in verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus' point is this. If you think I'm just a teacher, don't call me good. No teacher is sufficiently good for God. In this, Jesus is pointing out the massive disjunction that exists between God's goodness and righteousness and our supposed goodness and righteousness. This man seems to think of Jesus as an impressive, good, moral teacher who has climbed the religious ladder of goodness near enough to God that he can then give advice on how to be good like him. But Jesus will soon make the point, you are never able to fully obey in the way that God requires. That is not how you inherit eternal life. So Jesus continues in verse 19. You know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. In this, Jesus is listing the fifth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth 
commandments. Though the 10th commandment is conspicuously absent. Jesus deliberately only gives part of the law. And the man takes the bait. He says, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. But look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Loved him in his misguided zeal. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You see, this man was earnest, but his earnestness was misguided. He was trying to establish his righteousness based upon his own deeds, which is a fool's errand. Yet Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him enough to Desire to take away the burden of legalism off his back. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you know the great burden that exists from bearing your sins, trying to do more good than bad. Jesus loves him. He desires to take that burden away. And so we see that loving people often requires telling them hard truths. This is often the case in evangelism, isn't it? We need to love people enough to tell them that their search for eternal life has thus far been misguided. In their atheism or agnosticism and whatever religion they follow, because of our love, we need to confront that error. Because that's what Jesus does here. Notice in verse 21, for some of you mathematically minded, Jesus says, you lack one thing, and then Jesus proceeds to give four commands. You lack one thing, go sell, give, come. And the result will be that you follow me. Friends, what was this man lacking? What was the one thing that he lacked? Jesus. He had lots of obedience, lots of external rule following, but he lacks what he truly needs because he lacks Christ. This man is not perfect. Did you catch that? Why does he go away sorrowful? Why didn't Jesus remind him of the 10th commandment earlier? Because it was the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, that this man had been failing to keep. Jesus knew his heart. He knew that he loved his possessions. And so these instructions, go sell, give, and come, Well, they expose exactly where this man was falling short. And thus, by breaking the 10th commandment, he also broke the first commandment. In loving his possessions more than he loved Jesus, he ran afoul of that first and great command, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So friends, how can we inherit eternal life? Well, it's not through deeds It's not through being good, climbing the ladder, because we could never climb it high enough. We could never fulfill God's law perfectly. Oh, but it is a gift, because God is gracious and merciful. It is a gift to all those who follow Jesus. In calling this man to sell all that he has and give it to the poor, is Jesus summoning him 
to an especially hard discipleship? And is he literally calling every person, including you and me, to sell everything they have and give it away? I think the answer is no on both accounts. We know that it's not what every Christian must do because nowhere else in the Bible do we see Christians required to do this very thing. So again, why this command to this man? Well, it's simply the way that this particular man denies himself and takes up his particular cross. Do you remember two weeks ago in chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to do these things. To this man, Jesus says, go, sell, give, and come and follow me. For this man, this will be the cost of following Jesus. To use John Stott's language, this man needed to renounce his supposed right to go his own way. To deny oneself is to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. That's what Jesus was fundamentally calling this man to, and that is what he's calling all of us to. That kind of denying ourselves, bearing our cross. Jesus was saying to this man, you are holding on to your possessions. You are holding on to them so tightly. You cannot hold on to me until you let go of the money that has gotten hold of you. And when faced with the choice, the man chose possessions over the Savior. And so Jesus, looking around, says to his disciples in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This was shocking at the time for the Jews who viewed wealth as fundamentally and essentially and primarily a blessing from God. Why is it difficult for those with wealth to enter God's kingdom? Well, it's because those with wealth are tempted to not view themselves as weak, needy, dependent children. Riches provide such a temptation because they whisper to us, I am capable, I am strong, I am independent. Of course, it's not true. Brothers and sisters, if the Lord has entrusted to you wealth, be very careful. Be careful that the deceitfulness of riches does not lull you to sleep in your fight against self-reliance. We're all like naturally prone to go that way. Riches only amplifies that temptation. How are you seeking to fight against self-reliance? Verse 24, the disciples prove spiritually dull yet again. So Jesus repeats the point. Verse 24, he, it's interesting, he broadens the application. He says, just in general, how difficult it is to enter God's kingdom. You know, whether rich or poor, none of us enjoy viewing ourselves as weak, needy, dependent children. It's difficult for everyone. And then verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, I'm not sure how much time you spend around camels. I'm not sure how much knitting or sewing you do. Like, needles are this big. The eye of the needle is like this big. Camels are big. 
Jesus is saying, it's impossible. That's why the disciples are so astonished. So they say at the end of verse 26, then who can be saved? It's a really good question. And Jesus' words are unforgettable. Look there at verse 27. Jesus, said, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying that it is impossible for a person to save him or herself because in our own flesh it is impossible to love Jesus more than we love the stuff of this world. It is impossible to treasure Jesus more than riches apart from a miracle. This means, brothers and sisters, that if you find in your heart any love for Christ, any affection for his person, it's a miracle. It's the kind of miracle that you didn't do. God did it. Why would you choose Jesus over the riches of this world? Well, you wouldn't, unless God worked a miracle. He's caused you to love Jesus so much that you're willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, praise God. Praise God he doesn't leave us in our sin. And so our passage begins to wind down there in verse 28. As Peter mentioned, see, we have left everything and followed you. To which Jesus replies, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. What's Jesus' point? It's the same as what we saw two weeks ago. It's that following Jesus is worth it. Following Jesus is never a net loss in your life. Whatever you have to give up to follow Jesus, perhaps it's being disowned by your family because you've chosen to be baptized and leave your false religion. Uh, perhaps it's moving across the country to join a church plant. Or it's because it's perhaps you give generously to support world missions, living in a smaller house than your peers. In whatever ways you sacrifice in this life, Jesus wants us to know that it is a wise investment. In this life, God will care for you, uh, even through his people. This is like persecuted Christians know well. Your family may disown you, but God gives you a new family, the church. And that's just the start of it, right? Because in the age to come, well, then we will receive what that rich young ruler was looking for all along, eternal life. Not on the basis of our actions or good deeds, but as a gift, as a gift from our heavenly father. And so our passage concludes in verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus reminds his followers that they are not to live for present appearances, but for future glory. Then the Lord Jesus will judge the living and the dead. 
Then many who in this life seem to be first in their riches and glory and stature, well, they'll be seen to be last. Yet many of those in this life who seem to be the lowliest of servants, they will be deemed first. And the guarantee of all this is none other than Jesus' own life and ministry, right? For consider how Jesus left his father's house to cleave to the church as his beloved bride. How the Lord Jesus embodied meekness and lowliness, dependence upon his heavenly father's will, and how Jesus perfectly obeyed all of God's commands. Yet he didn't hoard that eternal life to himself, but he freely left all things to be last, dying on the cross for our sins so that we might receive eternal life by faith in his blood. In Jesus, God did the impossible. Though his life seemed like a failure, yet he was raised, and now he is first and highest in heaven. This is the good news that we want all people everywhere to believe. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to know and experience by faith in Christ. And thus, brothers and sisters, we're reminded that ultimate self-denial is unbiblical. Jesus doesn't call this man or you and me to take up our cross and leave everything because he wants to take our treasure from us. Rather, he is summoning us to pursue what will bring us the fullest and deepest and most lasting joy as Jesus himself becomes our eternal treasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel that you would adopt us into your heavenly family. We marvel that you would give us the gift of humility, the ability to recognize our weakness and our dependence upon you. Father, would you help us? Help us to hold our riches loosely. Help us to be faithful in marriage. Help us to be faithful in discipling our kids, bringing them to you. Lord, help us all to take up our cross. In whatever ways you've called us to deny ourselves, cause us to do so with joy because you've given us an eternal perspective, the hope of heaven and eternal life with you. Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we're going to conclude by singing Christ is mine forevermore. And if you turn to page 15, you note the first verse. It says, minor days that God has numbered, I was made to walk with him, yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the king of kings. This is all of us. But then if you look at verse 3b, the song concludes, and mine are keys to Zion city, where beside the king I'll walk, for there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Let's stand and sing together. Christ is mine forevermore.